Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 20. Before the usual intro, a quick programming note. This is the 200th episode of the podcast, which means we're coming up on the four-year anniversary. To me, living and breathing this routine for that long of a time seems a bit hard to believe. I'll dive into that more when the anniversary arises in a few weeks. For now, just marking that many iterations is cause enough for a deep breath. With that done, let's get started. Last week, I continued the history of the other minor characters and things in Numbers, in that case covering Caleb, the infamous couple Zimri and Cosby, along with the various forms of the Semitic deity Baal, including Beelzebub. This week, I'm beginning the landing approach for the Book of Numbers, with only a few topics left for the deep dives, covering the Nazarites and the judicial Sanhedrin. Numbers 6 describes a group of Israelites known as Nazarites. This was not a familial group, so not a tribe, but instead was a group described as individuals taking a vow to seemingly live separately from the other Hebrews. But, as the chapter goes into detail on, that wasn't the only requirement. There were other things they committed to doing. I'll get to all of that in a minute, but first I need to address the purpose of these vows and the separate living. There are many different reasons an Israelite would make the Nazarite vow. According to Josephus, in his own words, it is usual with those that have been afflicted either with a distemper or with any other distress to make vows, and for thirty days before they are to offer their sacrifices, to abstain from wine, and to shave the hair of their heads. So, to seek a cure for an affliction. The Old Testament and rabbinic literature records the vow was also taken for the fulfillment of a wish, such as for the birth of a child. Other rabbinic sources record the vow takers as being a pious person who wanted to have the opportunity to make a sin offering. Some interpreted the order of the text in Numbers as signifying that a man who witnessed a woman engaged and convicted of adultery, that man needed to become a Nazarite. My interpretation of this is that if a man witnessed a woman's adultery, that meant he was a party to it and this was the way to absolve himself of this sin. Finally, there were those who wanted to be a Nazarite when they died, or when the son of David, meaning the Messiah, came. Those in that last group could skirt around one of the vows, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Finally, in rabbinic literature, there was another example of a Nazarite. The high priest Simeon the Just is said to have encountered a youthful shepherd with flowing hair, who came to him and wished to have his head shaved clean. When asked his motive, the youth replied that he had seen his own face reflected in still water, and it had pleased him so much that he feared his beauty might become an idol to him. This seems really weird in any sort of a modern sense, but then again, we're surrounded by mirrors and cameras and have grown used to our own reflection. This youth, though, wished to offer up his hair to God, and Simeon then partook of the sin offering which he brought. It's thought that the youth may have become a Nazarite. 
maybe of the short-term sort, with this act. And about those vows, there were essentially three separate requirements. First was to avoid alcohol from grapes. Actually, that's not exactly correct. The text reads, They shall separate themselves from wine and strong drink. They shall drink no wine vinegar or other vinegar, and shall not drink any grape juice or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All their days as Nazarites, they shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. At least, that's how it reads in the New Revised Standard Version. The NIV drops the strong drink part and uses the phrase other fermented drink. The King James uses strong drink, but other parts of the quote are slightly different. Do note that some traditional rabbinic authorities claim that all other types of alcohol, meaning not from grapes, were permitted. In our modern culture, this would mean everything except wine. Beer, yes. Most liquors, yes. Hard cider, yes. Wine, that's a no. Along with freshly picked grapes or anything else from the grapevine. There were other traditional rabbinic sources that said no to any sort of alcohol. It really depended on who you asked. The next vow involved the hair. Essentially, it had to remain uncut and was allowed to grow. Obviously, the most well-known example of this was Samson, who I'll get to in a few minutes. They could groom their hair with their hand or scratch their head, but combs were forbidden. Why? Well, combs tended to pull hair out. Your hand may knock a few strands out, but that was just the normal course of events. Having said that, those who contracted leprosy, the skin disease described earlier in Leviticus 14, these people were required to cut their hair. The third and final part of the vow was not to become ritually impure by contact with a corpse or a grave, even those of family members. In order to become a Nazarite, the person had to make a vow, but to end their time as a Nazarite required a specific process. First, they would make the vow, and then, after a certain number of days, usually the days specified in the vow itself, he would bathe in a mikvah, essentially completing the ritual bath. He would then make three sacrifices, a male lamb as a burnt offering, a ewe, which is a female sheep, as a sin offering, and a ram, which is an adult male sheep, as a peace offering. He would then also make offerings of a basket of unleavened bread, grain, and drink offerings. These would accompany the peace offering. After this, his head would be shaved in the outer courtyard. The recently cut hair would be placed on the same fire as the peace offering. While the text of Numbers 6 is really involved, most of it focuses on the offerings and sacrifices and particular nuances. Later Jewish writers, both Talmudic and Rabbinic writers, would fill in many of the gaps. One such was the vow itself. Recall that Numbers, in the 30th chapter, lays out all of the rules concerning vows. These apply to Nazarite vows, too. A father can annul the Nazarite vow of his young daughter, and a husband can annul a vow by his wife, assuming he does so when he first hears of it. 
In a similar fashion, the laws related to intent and conditional vows apply to Nazarite vows. To become a Nazarite, only a verbal vow was required. It could be in any language and could be as simple as saying, Me too, when a Nazarite walked by. As far as the time period was concerned, it was for a minimum of 30 days. If you set a smaller number of days, or specified no time period, the default was 30 days. But if you said it was forever, or for life, well, you guessed it. It was for the rest of your natural life. But that wasn't all. A father could declare his son to be a Nazarite. A mother had no such authority. And the son could object, as could any other close family member. The father, though, couldn't declare his daughter to be one. The Nazarites would also later, but not too much later, be divided into three types, with each one having slightly different rules and regs concerning what they could and couldn't do. There were temporary Nazarites, permanent ones, and ones that resembled Samson. These last ones, the Samson ones, were permanent too, but could cut their hair once a year, if it really bothered them, at least according to a few sources. Do note that none of this is laid out in numbers, but came to be as the Jewish religion aged and developed more traditions and customs. Overall, one thing to consider is that becoming a Nazarite merely required the execution of the vow, but all of the sacrifices and offerings to exit the vow were required to be done at the tabernacle. Then after the Jerusalem temple was built, these would be done there. But do recall, there have been periods in history where there was no temple, such as between the destruction of the first and the construction of the second temples, which was during the Babylonian exile. Also, after the destruction of the second temple through today, there is no official place for this to occur. So, the thinking is that those who take the vow when there was no temple were of the permanent sort. So, what happens if the person slips up and has a drink or cuts their hair? The temporary Nazarites may need to repeat all or some of the times specified in their vow. They also may be required to bring additional offerings and sacrifices. An example of this can be found in the Mishnah, the first major work of rabbinic literature. In there, the first century queen, Helena, vowed to be a Nazarite for seven years. Helena was the queen of Adiabene, a kingdom in Assyria. She would convert to Judaism and move to Jerusalem, along with her sons. She made the vow, hoping to ensure her son's safe return from a war. He did return safely, and she set out to fulfill her promise. At the end of the seven years, for reasons I could not find, she was told her effort wasn't enough and she needed a repeat for another seven years. So she did. But towards the end of that period, she became impure. No mention if it was wine or hair or contact with a dead body. Either way, she had to repeat the seven-year period. Again. So she did, this time without blemish, for a total of almost 21 years. Do note that a few sources say it was only two iterations of seven years, but either way, she had to repeat it. 
I did find a few sources that said the cutting of hair only garnered a 30-day extension, and the partaking of wine had no time consequence. But, like most things I've run across, this surely varied by era and location. About the abstention from drinking wine, or maybe strong drink. Remember the sort who were doing it in order to be a certain level of holy when the son of David, the Messiah, came? Many of them considered it permissible to drink on the Sabbath and feast days, since they believed the Messiah would not appear on those days. Some Nazarites also stayed away from meat, and many Jews of the era, who didn't even take the vow, avoided alcohol and meat. There was also a subset of rabbis who didn't exactly buy into the Nazarite concept, since they considered all vows to be abhorrent. Therefore, adherents who would fast or avoid certain foods, and especially those who would take vows, were looked down upon by these religious teachers. There are two well-known Nazarites in the Old Testament, Samson, of course, and the prophet Samuel. These two will be covered in depth in a later episode, so for now, I'll just touch on the Nazarite aspects of their lives. They both were born to previously childless and assumed to be barren mothers. In both cases, the mothers made Nazarite vows in order to conceive, a Nazarite obligation that was passed on to both sons when they were born. So, they were obligated to the Nazarite life at birth. In Samson's case, God sent an angel to tell his soon-to-be mother that she should abstain from strong drink, not to eat anything unclean, and that her son was not to cut his hair. She was told that her son would deliver Israel from the Philistines after 40 years of bondage. Samson was to be a Nazarite his whole life, and because of this was gifted with extraordinary strength. There are a few that argue Samson became impure when he touched a dead lion. The counter-argument is that the dead body restriction applies only to dead people. This makes sense to me, otherwise Nazarites would also have to be vegetarians. Others say that Samson's status as an Israelite warrior and liberator allowed him to touch dead bodies, especially those of Israel's recently deceased enemies. This too makes sense, especially in the era of hand-to-hand combat. He also is said to have served wine at his wedding feast, though I can find no explicit mention of this in the text. But if he did serve wine, it still doesn't mean he drank it. As for Samuel, his mother, Hannah, was barren too. Her story was a bit different, from the text of 1 Samuel 1. She went to the temple and prayed that if God would give her a son, she would make him a Nazarite his whole life. Samuel, of course, was born a Nazarite and became a prophet. Now, the Nazarites aren't limited to the Old Testament. It's not explicit, but Luke 1 implies that John the Baptist was a Nazarite from birth when the angel tells John's father, Zechariah, that John must never drink wine or strong drink. Nothing was said, at least nothing was recorded in the text, about his hair or a dead body. There's also debate over whether a Nazarite was the same as a Nazarene, maybe a mistranslation. 
with the repercussion being if Jesus was considered to be a Nazarite. There are passages that seem to support it, at least in the end, when at the Last Supper, in Mark 14, he says he will never drink from the vine again, at least not until he's in the kingdom of God. Earlier in his life, in Mark 11 and Luke 7, he was said to have drunk wine, and of course, his first miracle was turning water to wine. Of course, in this context, Nazarite could also refer to someone from Nazareth, a place name that holds its roots in the Nazarites. But that's enough of all of that. After his crucifixion and resurrection came Saul turned Paul. In Acts 18, Paul cut off his hair because of a vow. Acts 21 tells of four men who were under a vow go through a rite of purification and shave their heads. Maybe part of a Nazarite process. Maybe. There's also an extra-biblical story related to Eusebius, the 4th century bishop of Caesarea, a story that James, the brother of Jesus and bishop of Jerusalem, was a Nazarite and performed with rigorous exactness all of the practices required as such. Then, in Acts 24, Paul is accused of being a rabble-rousing ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes, though the footnote in the New Revised Standard records that it could be translated as Nazorian. Some think this, too, may be a mistranslation of Nazarite. Maybe yet another example of something that has been lost to history. One more thing about the Nazarites. There is a minor modern religion, known as Rastafari, that has adopted some elements of the Nazarites into their practices, specifically referring to Samson. Rastafarianism originated in Jamaica in the 1930s. They specifically focus on the not cutting of the hair part of the vow, which is why most adherents have dreadlocks. Some Rastafari believe that Samson had dreadlocks, as suggested by the description stating that he had seven locks upon his head in Judges 16. Also, the Rastafari are taught to abstain from alcohol. Many have adopted the dietary laws found in Leviticus. And that's it for the Nazarites. The other topic for this week is the body that came to be known as the Sanhedrin, this was a group of judges set up to rule on disputes between the people in religious matters. But the word itself, in the three Bible versions I use, only appears in the NIV, though several times. One such is in Matthew 26, after Jesus' arrest, when he was taken to the temple priest. In the other two translations, instead of Sanhedrin, they usually call the body a council. The concept, though, appears throughout the Bible, which is why I'm covering it now. The Sanhedrin were assemblies of either 23 or 71 elders, appointed to sit as a tribunal in every city in the ancient land of Israel. After the destruction of the Second Temple, they took on the name rabbis in an effort to hide the work of the body. I'll get to their later history in a minute. In Exodus, Moses following the advice of his father-in-law Jethro, would set up a group of judges to reduce his personal workload. In Numbers 11, 
God instructs Moses to assemble 70 elders to spread the work out. There were further instructions in Deuteronomy 1, and even more in Deuteronomy 17, and from this, the system of judges was established. Essentially, Moses would give the judges full authority over the Israelites, meaning the people were bound to their laws and rulings. So, how did the number go from the 70 to the 71 in 23? There was the understanding that people would be judged by their community, and a community needed at least 10 men to be valid, but it would take a majority vote, so 10 times 2 plus 1, 21. But this only gives you a simple majority, and that was not enough, at least according to an interpretation of Exodus 23. The next logical number is, coincidentally, 23. An odd number, so there wouldn't be a tie. It would take a vote of at least 12 in the affirmative for a ruling to be valid. The general thought is that this body was mostly concerned with religious matters. After settling in Canaan, each city would have a tribunal with 23 judges, so this was typically known as a lesser Sanhedrin. There was a singular great Sanhedrin that had 71 judges. This body would act as an appellate court for the lower courts. Do note that when you see the word Sanhedrin, it is likely referring to the great Sanhedrin, the one with 71 judges. In the first over thousand or so years, the high priest was the head of the great Sanhedrin. During the second temple period, they would meet at a building known as the Hall of Hewn Stones in Jerusalem. And they were apparently busy meeting every day except the Sabbath and during festivals. In 191 BC, the Sanhedrin lost confidence in the high priest, and the office of Nazai was created. He would lead the great Sanhedrin. This was essentially the chief officer of the group, usually the lead scholar from one of the Talmudic academies. He was also usually a descendant of David, and held close to what amounted to royal authority. When votes were taken, tradition was that he was the last to cast a vote. Below him was the chief of the court, entitled the Avi Biden. The title literally translates to the father of the house of judgment likely because he would preside over the body during criminal matters. Then there were the regular members known as the Mufla. The great Sanhedrin would hear matters too important for lesser bodies, like if the king was put on trial, or to extend the boundaries of the temple in Jerusalem. And of course, as the Supreme Court, they were the court of last resort. During the 2nd century BC, the Hasmonean court in the land of Israel was known as the Sanhedrin and was presided over by either the king or queen of Judea, beginning with Alexander Janius, though little is known about this exact body, and it may have been a Sanhedrin in name only. The version seen in the New Testament came into being in the first century BC, around 57 BC, with the body being administered by Aulus Gabinius. This group was made up of priests, Levites, and common Jews, at least those with approvable pure lineage. Josephus would write that at the same time there were five Sanhedra, and they were concerned with only religious matters. 
Under Roman rule, the law was administered by the Romans, but they left religious matters to the religions themselves, in this case the Sanhedrin, except in cases of suspected sedition. Something to consider when you read of the accusations against Jesus and his subsequent trial. They would also play a role in Acts 5 when they attempted to persecute some of the apostles. In Acts 7, Stephen would give a speech to the Sanhedrin, a speech that led to his stoning. At this time, the Sanhedrin would reach its peak importance, essentially governing all religious matters. During the era, most decisions were left up to the 23-member panel. Only the most important cases were left up to the 71. Of course, the Romans would destroy the Second Temple in 70 AD. After this, the Sanhedrin would move to southern Galilee, in Roman Syria, Palestinia. It was with this move that some began to refer to the body as the Galilean Patriarchate, or in some cases, the Patriarchate of Palestinia. The name Sanhedrin would be dropped completely in the late 3rd century AD. It was then called the Beit HaMidrash, meaning the House of Learning. But the days of the body were numbered, and it issued its final universally binding decision in 358 AD. This decision was to abandon the Hebrew calendar. At that time, the Hebrew calendar was based on witnesses' testimony, which had become far too politically dangerous to collect. So, they switched to a math-based calendar. All of this adopted at a secret meeting. In the late 4th century, Eastern Roman Emperor Theodosius I prohibited the Sanhedrin from meeting and declared ordination illegal under penalty of not only death, but also the destruction of the city where the ordination occurred. The group would officially disband in 425 AD, under persecution from the empire. In the years since, many including Napoleon and in modern Israel have attempted to reinstate the body, but it has yet to happen. And that's a good stopping point for this episode. Join me next week when I'll lead off with leprosy. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions may be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there... Be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss any. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.